Welcome to Garden People with your host, Jill Sowards of Violet Air Studio. Join us each season as we speak with your favorite garden people, designers, florists, growers, naturalists, chefs, artists, and more about how gardens have shaped their lives and inform their work today with seasonal tips, expert recommendations, and lots and lots of plants. To learn more, go to our website at violetairstudio.com. You'll find episode information, our seasonal journal, class list, and seed offerings. Everything you need to start your own garden story. My guest is Claire Foster, the garden editor at House and Garden Magazine in the UK. Claire is the author of numerous books, including The Flower Garden, in collaboration with photographer Sabina Ruber, and more recently, The Gorgeous Winter Gardens, with photographer Andrew Montgomery. Claire's own garden, featured in her blog, Bud to Seed, is an inspiring example of low-input, high-reward design from a gardener who has access to some of the most beautiful spaces and teachers in the world. Claire's writing is such a pleasure to read, and she seems to track every shift in garden design and ethos worth investigating. I often think she either covers everything and everyone I want to learn about, or introduces me to what I will want to learn next. The first printing of Winter Garden sold out quickly, and a reprint has been ordered, which Claire and Andrew hope to make available by late summer. You can find links in the show notes to follow them for ordering information. Claire, thank you so much for joining Garden People. It's wonderful to have you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. I'm honored. (laughs) Well, uh, so I wanted to begin by asking you to describe just yourself and your work and how you came to gardening and garden writing. So I have been a garden writer for 25 years, unbelievably. It doesn't feel like it. It kind of came about by accident. I was in book publishing originally, and I enjoyed book publishing, but I found it quite slow. And I decided that I wanted to work for a magazine. So I started looking and looking at all the job adverts for ridiculous magazines like the Nursing Times and, I don't know, the Glass and Glazing (laughs) Federation. And there were some very dull jobs out there. And I applied for lots and didn't get anything. And thank goodness, in a way. And then I saw an advert for a job in Gardens Illustrated magazine, which is a lovely, glossy garden magazine that you've probably heard of. And yes, yes. which is still still going strong today. I'm a subscriber. Oh, are you? Yeah, yeah it's a fantastic <laughs> magazine. Still is. And I'd heard of it because I was working in the publicity department at Thames and Hudson and I was sending copies of books out to various magazines and Gardens Illustrated was was one of those. It was quite new then and I admired it because it was very visual and the photographs were great. Although I didn't really connect with Gardens at the time, I liked that very visual approach. And so I applied for a job as a sub-editor and I got it against the odds because I had no horticultural experience and no journalistic experience either. So I went for the job and got it and was thrown in completely at the deep end, but absolutely loved it. And that was when I started gardening, amazingly. I mean, I grew up with a garden, my parents' garden, and we we had a big acre of garden in the middle of a town, actually. They grew veg and we helped pick the veg and, I don't know, probably made to do a bit of weeding. So I kind of, by assimilation, connected with the garden, but I, I don't think I showed any early interest in it at all so it was really at Gardens Illustrated that was the time when I I started gardening and the reason I started was actually because well I was living in London and I had a very small garden I mean literally nothing just a little courtyard so I used to grow my own herbs and and loved that But the editor at Gardens Illustrated, who was called Rosie Atkins, she was a real mentor to me, actually. She was wonderful. And she 
encouraged me and nudged me actually into getting an allotment, which was a fairly terrifying prospect. But um, I got an allotment and I shared it with my cousin, actually. I was in my mid-twenties. All my friends thought I was mad. (laughs) And I started growing on my own vegetables. And the minute I started digging that soil over, I was hooked. I absolutely loved it. And all my family was surprised. And I surprised myself in a way. But I absolutely loved it. And I've been gardening ever since. That's wonderful. And when did you start publishing your own books and working at House and Garden? So House and Garden, I've been there for 16 years now. And I I was still at Gardens Illustrated and I had a baby and then I had another baby. And I went back full time after both. You know, some people can do it, but I found it very hard. And I was going to go back. I was on my second maternity leave and I had every plans to go back. But I found out about the job at Garden House and Garden, which was a freelance job and part-time. And so my mind started ticking over and I just thought, gosh, that really could be the perfect job for me. And it was, uh, it was just very lucky. So I do feel like that my career has been a lot of luck and being in the right place at the, the right time, which has yeah. been fantastic. And yeah, 16 years on, my kids are now 17 and 18 and I'm still there and I still love it just as much. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. And then in the meantime, you most recently published Winter Gardens with Andrew Montgomery, but you also have a couple of other books. One, especially that I rely on a lot, which is The Flower Garden, How to Grow Flowers from Seed. Yeah, so I've done a few books. The first book that I was asked to write when I had my allotment, actually, was called Compost. (laughs) And um, again, I was quite young and... I couldn't believe that someone had literally rung me up out of the blue to ask me to write a book on compost. (laughs) And I thought, God, my goodness, can there ever be enough to write about compost? But of course there is. I started researching it. (laughs) Absolutely. I started researching it and talking to old people who knew everything about composting on my allotment and just learning from them, really. And that book is still in print, amazingly enough. And actually, the pinnacle of my career was when Beth Chatto voted it as one of her top 10 garden books. (laughs) It was incredible. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. I didn't realize I know. It was. That was literally the the pinnacle of my career. It was amazing. Oh, yeah. I think you could retire. (laughs) That's wonderful. It was. It was amazing. And then the Flower Garden book was published in 2018, I think. And I loved doing that book. It was a collaboration with the photographer, Sabina Ruber, who's also a friend of mine. And we decided that we wanted to do the book, but we also decided that we were going to grow between us every single flower that was mentioned in the book. So it's not an encyclopedia of flowers to grow from seed. It's our choice it's our pick of flowers if you like the best varieties and some of the easiest some a bit more tricky but some of the loveliest flowers to grow from seed I think it's such a wonderful idea for both for the photography and just for the experience I think it makes it almost more cohesive because it isn't an encyclopedia it's something that really works together and yeah is naturally occurring in your garden almost you're picking them because they're all work for the place and aspect Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, we learned so much when we were growing. I mean, and there's no right, I also learned that there's no right or wrong in growing from seed. I mean, it's just, it's not an exact science. And, you know, there are lots of things in gardening that you do have to do by the book. 
pruning and things like that, you have to be pretty careful. But actually, the parameters with growing from seed are so wide and everyone has different circumstances. You might have a greenhouse, you might not. You have different climates and all those things just add up to, to mean that, you know, there are different ways and different methods that you can experiment with to grow things from seed and there is no right or wrong and don't give up <laughs> Great. <laughs> because <laughs> because things do go wrong sometimes yes <laughs> even if you've been doing it for years <laughs> right right where do you garden today can you describe your space it has i should also note that i'll link to your but to see website and also to your instagram account where i find a lot of your wonderful pictures Oh, thank you. Yeah, so my garden is in Berkshire, and it's kind of on the top of a hill. So Berkshire is probably an hour and a half away from London, west of London. And I've got a cottage garden. It's not huge. It's about a third of an acre. And it's quite a new garden. I started it from scratch when we arrived here four years ago. And there was a nice blank canvas here (laughs) when we arrived. The previous owners, I think, had just taken things out and put big laurel hedges all around. So I basically just started from scratch. And in the front garden, I made a zany cottage garden. It's not that traditional, quite colourful. And there's four brick-edged beds set in the gravel. And I've just planted things that I know will self-seed. So the beds are kind of walking out into the gravel and and the plants are almost designing themselves actually because everything's self-seeding which I love I love the haphazardness of it and the chance of it and and just seeing what comes up it's quite exciting so that's the front garden and then at the back there is a big kind of curvy border with lots of tall perennials and that was slightly more designed I did a planting plan for that and and then didn't entirely follow it but there was a, a, a theme and the theme, of course, changes as you go along as well. It was it was meant to be quite not as colourful as the front, so a bit more tasteful, a bit more muted. And that's changed because it was a bit too muted and a bit too boring. Mm-hmm. And so I just shoved a bit of a bit more colour in here and there with heleniums and some penstemons, and that's so that's made a difference. But it's always changing. I mean, a garden it just yeah. it never finishes. You you're always looking at it and planning new things. Yes, yes. Those penstemons, the pink ones, I believe you're referring to, are were really beautiful. I definitely noted those in my to-be-grown-soon <laughs> diary. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> garnet. They're, they're penstemon garnet. And they're so yeah, easy, yeah. so easy to grow. And I take cuttings from them the whole time, so I multiply them and give them to friends. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. And so in this season, this sort of late winter, early springtime, what does your garden look like? So it looks very lovely when there's a frost because there's lots of seed heads and there's lots of structure. So there's in the front garden, there's lots of evergreen domes. Back garden, lots of lots of seed heads. So it does look lovely in a frost, but I'm afraid to say when there isn't a frost, it's starting to look a bit sorry for itself at this time of year. Just things collapsing a bit and the grass is looking terrible because I've got two dogs and one of them's puppy and she's still running around madly. So in frost, it looks great and I will leave it for a bit longer, but soon it will all be cut back. Yeah. What do you look most forward to in the garden in this transition into spring after the cutback? Well, spring is definitely my favorite time of year. I absolutely love spring. And I, I love that time when everything's just coming through and you've got that 
excitement of the spring and everything's growing so quickly and when everything's kind of mounding up so all the perennials are starting to make those lovely clean fresh bright green mounds I just love that time of year and so after I've cut things back I'll usually give everything a mulch so it looks all neat and tidy it looks very bare but quite neat and tidy and then the tulips will be starting to come through and I have lots of forget-me-nots that kind of soften the tulips also some honesty I grow this honesty called Corfu blue which is fantastic and I grew that from seed the seed actually came from Helen Dillon who's quite a famous Irish gardener she's absolutely lovely I went to see her garden once and she took me around and gave me these seed pods from this honesty and I, I brought it back and was kind of slightly nervous about the fact, would it germinate or not? And it did. And I've still got it going. And now it just sells seeds in my garden. Looks lovely. That's such a sweet exchange and kind of a through line from garden to garden to have that propagating itself now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it reminds me of her. I've only met her a couple of times, but she's absolutely lovely. And then I have other plants that remind me of other people. You know, I have plants that my mum gave me. I've got a shrub. Um, it's my granny's, and she used to grow them. My mum's got some in her garden as well. Oh, that's wonderful. So it reminds me of her. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And do you have any changes planned, or you're going to carry this structure and layout to the next year? Well, I'm always trying to change the garden. Yeah. <laughs> my husband is fairly argumentative about it because he always wants lots of lawn. And I just want to fill the whole space with plants, of course. So, yeah, ongoing argument about encroaching a bit more into the lawn. And the idea I had the other day, actually, he didn't say no to, which was good. I want a really narrow little curvy brick path that will lead from the back door over to my vegetable patch because at the moment I just walk across grass which is fine yeah. but it would just it would just kind of split up the the space and divide it up and I think the line could follow the edge of the, the curvy bed and look quite nice but yeah I'm always having thoughts like that and I I stand there with my arms kind of designing it in my in my mind right. <laughs> and he knows right. my husband knows that there's something going on and he <laughs> throws up his hands in despair <laughs> he sees you out there <laughs> yeah what's coming next <laughs> yeah exactly and do you tend to add annuals or even perennials throughout the season are you doing a lot of work or for the most part just relying on that self-seeding structure yeah I definitely add things in because there's always gaps you know there are always things that go wrong and because I like growing th things from seed I always have Ami and Cosmos in the wings waiting to plug those gaps and also I don't know it's just the, the doing of it that keeps me going somehow and it's a, it's like painting a picture with plants you're always striving for that perfection and I think if you're adding things you can tweak it around a bit and and also, it's nice to try different plants every year. So, yeah, I'm, last year I tried a lovely new Cynoglossum, which is the Chinese forget-me-not. And it was called Misty Lavender, I think. So I grew lots of those. And I just, there were gaps kind of at the front of the border. So I started edging one of the borders with those, and it was lovely. Do you have anything new for this year? I've just bought some seed this year. So what have I bought I'm sure there's new things in there. Yeah, so there's an agastache that I want to try, which has really lovely kind of apricot flowers. Oh, beautiful. Is it Navajo Sunset? 
Yes. <laughs> it's beautiful. No, yeah. it is. Yeah. And I think they're really easy to grow from seeds. So I'm going to give that a go. And I've got an echinacea that I want to try and some zinnias that I haven't tried before from Chilton Seeds. They're a very good UK seed merchant. They used to mail to the US and this year I spent a very long time making my selections and then realized that they no longer, oh, no no. longer sent. I know I was so sad. I love, I love their selection. It's wonderful. Oh no, I know it's so difficult now that the whole yeah. shipping, I mean, to Europe from here as well is awful. It's such a shame, isn't it? Yeah. One of the things that I really love about your garden mm. is how much height and sort of movement. I'm, I'm only seeing still images, but it seems like there's a lot of movement in your planting. And so I was wondering if you, you think that there are key plants that you rely on and or is there a scheme of a planting that you think kind of really achieves that? I know there's traditionally, you know, short, middle, high kind of front to back, but maybe I'm seeing a little bit of some high things in the kind of middle range to sort of break mm. up the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't like too much kind of uniformity mm-hmm. and regularity. So it's very much inspired by kind of nature, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Grasses, I think, really help to break up the uniformity. And and I've got Stiper gigantea quite far forward in the border because that's fairly transparent as well. Yeah. So I've got a couple of those, and then I've got Palamagrostis Carl Forster at back, which is sometimes a bit rigid. It has a very kind of upright profile, but actually, if you group it randomly, it's one of the most wonderful grasses, and it's one of the most useful because it just looks good kind of, oh, I don't know, nine months out of 12, or even, yeah. I mean, it just until you cut it back in late February, early March here. So it's just a really, really good grass for for structure. And then some of the other perennials that I've got are really tall, actually, and are spreading a little bit too fast. And (laughs) they're two asters, which aren't called asters anymore. Right. Um, I've never attempted it out loud. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I I can never. Cynthia Trichum, I think. But anyway, they're asters. And one is umbilatus and that is incredibly tall these little white flowers it has quite a nice appley green foliage as well in in as it's growing in the spring so from that point of view it's quite useful and then the other one is aster turbin uh, cynthia trichum turbinellus and that has little purple flowers and i love that but it is spreading it's not self-seeding but it's plumping up very quickly yeah. in getting quite muscly so I've had to cut into that already this spring and then other softer flowers I've got there's a lovely campanula which is a kind of dusky pink campanula and but that's really lovely because it just produces these beautiful clouds of of dusky pink which is very soft and they wave around because I think movement you're right movement is so important in a border so it's not static and it's not rigid it just yeah, it looks natural, basically. It looks really natural. Yeah. And are you staking anything or do you rely on the plants to hold each other up? Yeah, I don't stake. I try it's my gardening is low maintenance as possible because I don't have a huge amount of time and I do it all myself because I love it. And I garden mainly at, at weekends really. So now I do have to go in and do rescue staking sometimes, you know, late yeah. on in the summer if the ammies have grown really tall and they're collapsing. So I go and put bamboo canes in, 
but I do rely on the network of plants fairly densely planted to just to self-support. That's great. But I was wondering what your daily practice is. Obviously, I have to water a lot, water my seedlings a lot. So I will go out to my greenhouse every day in spring and just do a little routine watering. And I love that. I, like, I work at home mainly. So being able to just pop out into the garden every day is just well, it's kind of therapy, really. It's fantastic. Yeah. And then I already said that my favorite time of year is spring, but I'd say the whole of spring going into summer, <laughs> I absolutely love because then in June, you get those long evenings and then I will go out outside even after I've eaten and and potter around in the garden then. So yeah, I love that. Absolutely love it. And the rest of the time, the rest of the year, yeah, it is kind of squeezed into the weekends just because I'm very busy with work throughout the week. Yeah. A prime example would be, again, the Winter Gardens book with, what was your turnaround time? Was it nine months? For, for yeah, just about. Yeah. That's incredible. It was a really interesting exercise because neither of us have had, well, Andrew sort of self-published the Petersham book before, but it was a new experience for us. And we just realized that without connecting into the, the big publishing networks who have big teams of people and take a long time to make decisions and we had complete control so therefore it was just the two of us and we're both really hard workers we could do it ourselves and and yeah. so so we did it we started photographing well, we had a couple of gardens that we had already photographed for features in house and garden but the rest we photographed all last winter so that was say probably 10 gardens we photographed last winter so Andrew was you know all over the place getting up really really early and I was swanning in slightly later <laughs> to come and see the garden yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I wrote it all by beginning of June then it went to print and we got the copies at the end of October and did you do all your own editing and then have someone just compile it or did you use any sort of review system yeah we did we did I can't, you know, I'm not fallible. Someone had to edit my work. And so we had a really, really good editor, freelance editor. And we had a freelance designer. I mean, Andrew sort of designed the book. He sat there with the designer. But the designer did the technical stuff in kind of putting it together and doing all the fonts and making it look great. But so we pulled in experts where we needed to and did the rest ourselves and then we we didn't have a distributor so we did all that ourselves and so we were kind of ringing bookshops and Andrew turned into a traveling car salesman with all the books in in the boot <laughs> I mean it was incredible yeah. absolutely incredible so I mean really hard work but we managed it and we sold you know pretty much a thousand copies in five weeks it was incredible yeah we're doing a, a reprint actually so we're oh, good yeah so that's happening fairly soon so we should have copies by may hopefully okay wonderful it's such a beautiful book it's so timely i was wondering if especially as your your role as a garden writer and within you know the, the world of garden writing if you've noticed how the trend kind of the appreciation of more of a winter garden how that has changed over time i just i think when i saw your book it was absolutely gorgeous and I think it would have changed my mind if I didn't like winter gardens already but I also think that I had been slowly sort of moving along like my eye had changed kind of over time and I was learning to appreciate it more mm. oh definitely I mean I think the whole move towards the more naturalistic garden 
has helped with that shift. People like Pete Aldolf, the Dutch garden designer. I mean, I think he was the first person or the first designer really to put into words and to, to voice the beauty of perennial plants as they die. And so to value their full life cycle as they go through, rather than just celebrating them in flower, why not look at them in their entire life cycle? So, and I think it's that kind of observation that is so interesting, really. So you're really looking at a plant and you're, you're thinking about it and you are really appreciating it at every stage of its life. And I think, yeah, again, people like Dan Pearson is very good yes. at really kind of encouraging you to slow down. It's that slow gardening. It's like slow food and all those slow movements. Slow gardening, it just encourages you rather to, than rushing around the whole time to really look at things. And then, and I think actually this book has really taught me how to do that because I'm always rushing around at a million miles an hour trying to do too many things. And I, I did feel a bit as if I was wanting to hibernate in winter before this. And going to these gardens in winter and then talking to people like Dan Pearson and hearing what he had to say and really studying and looking closely at a, at a seed head and seeing its beauty. It's just, it's made me, it's been a revelation for me really to see things in a different way. It's been fantastic. Yeah, that's wonderful. And can you describe what you think are key principles about a winter garden that you would, that someone might be able to draw from in their own space or what do you look for? Well, I think the first thing is to have a good structure, a good green structure in your garden. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be green. You know, you can use hard landscaping. But for me, you know, nature-led gardens are easier on the eye and, and they, they'd always be my choice. So, yeah, a good structure is, is so important. And before you even start thinking about the overlay of flowers, to just think about where you're going to put the, the architecture and start from that point. Because if you don't have any of that, as everything starts to die back, your eye is not led anywhere in the garden. So, yeah, so important. And actually you can get, it doesn't have to just be green. It can be, you know, I've got slightly different shades of green. In my front garden, I've got Teucrium fruticans, which is a slightly tender, although it's been all right in my garden at minus seven last year. But that has very lovely grey-green leaves and it can be clipped into lovely loose shapes so yeah evergreen structure very important and then always choose plants for good seed heads and there are lots you can choose from and I was inspired by Pete Aldolf and reading his books um, designing with plants is a, one of his most inspirational books for me I've always used that book in the several gardens that I've planted in the last 15 years so, yeah, plants like Flomis, Rosaliana, which is brilliant for its seed heads and very, very strong. Echinacea, of course, leaves those buttons and Rebecca. And thinking about the shapes of those seed heads as well and having enough variety of shapes mixed in with the grasses. And then when you do have a frost <laughs> and it's not looking slightly grey and soggy as it as it was today then it all comes alive and it, it looks amazing yeah well I will also link to your but to see blog post on the great plants for winter for seed heads I think it was wonderful how you described the different shapes the stars mm. and 
domes and I think it's a helpful way to picture it too yeah yeah exactly and it's just sometimes it's it's a matter of, of yeah just thinking about it and visualizing it and thinking okay this guy this is what it looks like now what is it going to look like in winter and try and try and imagine it which is quite hard sometimes right. I think <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely any favorite garden moments from the development of the book any spots you particularly enjoyed although I'm sure they're all beautiful well the Pete Adolf garden so I went there with Andrew and we went there before Christmas actually and it was the most awful November day kind of late November day and it was absolutely pouring and we were shooting the garden for a feature in, in house and garden and we got there you know what it's like with garden shoots you can't you well you have to be responsive to the weather but we were traveling we'd booked flights we'd we were getting over there we had to go on that particular day and the weather was just awful and I can remember standing there Andrew was up a ladder and I was holding an umbrella above him and the rain was (laughs) dripping down but actually the garden was unbelievably beautiful even in the rain it was kind of almost luminous and there were drops of mm-hmm. rain on the on the grasses and everything was was almost shining it was it was incredible yeah. and the photographs really picked that up and it, it was just such a successful shoot against the odds you just can't predict these things yeah yeah i mean that was that was amazing and and having Pete show us around and talk us through each area of the garden and you know see for real the seed heads that he he grows and why he chose them you know you can you can see exactly he's a master he's an absolute master he's amazing yeah that's very exciting and how wonderful that it maybe if you if it was more local you would have rescheduled or something but the garden is designed kind of to have that structure even in pouring rain I guess (laughs) well yeah exactly I know my whole entire life is restructuring and I mean rescheduling <laughs> garden <Right>. shoots because <laughs> it's just impossible to predict and some people don't really get that yeah. they kind of say right we're going to be really well organized uh, let's plan our shoot now for you know April the 14th you yeah. know that, that, that yeah. can't work you have to be responsive you know, explaining yeah. that to people <laughs> sound yeah. like a broken record <laughs> One thing moves and then everything has to move around it. So that must be, yeah, a lot of time doing that. <laughs> and do you keep a diary at all of your own garden and what you're seeing or any other records besides photos? I always plan to, but I, I never do. <laughs> uh, photos are my best record of it, really. But then I do I do blog about it. So I, I have a, a bit of a record there. And I write about yeah, yeah. it in House of Garden as well. So I've done various garden diaries. So yes, I suppose I've got that record yeah. to look, look back to. I mean, I do I do occasionally kind of scribble things down in a notebook, but I'm so badly organized that I then forget where that notebook is. And then that notebook becomes something else with other scribbles in it. And it's just lost forever. Right. <laughs> so I'm just so badly organized. I really am. But I, I have got quite a good memory for things so if I if I'm standing there and I think I need to I need to move that when the time comes you know I need to move that perennial or I need to divide that I need to move that eupatorium to that gap there then I will remember that and I will come back and and do it at a later stage yeah yeah exactly I am so badly organized and my desk is always chaotic (laughs) (laughs) 
I think I still think you get more done than, than most humans, but I'm pleased that it's not entirely based on superb organization. <laughs> no, it's uh, no, quite the opposite. Creative chaos, creative yeah, chaos. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and did you ever have a formal training of any sort or, or mainly sort of self-taught? I have never, ever <laughs> done a horticultural course yeah. in my entire <laughs> life. It's not through, it's not because I don't want to, it's because I don't have time. And I do sometimes still, I do have imposter syndrome. I do feel a fraud mm-hmm. sometimes, but but I have, yeah, I've taught myself. I've read so much because I'm always reading other people's articles. I'm always interviewing people. So I'm learning from real gurus. And because I, I love it and I'm interested in it, I suppose I absorb it and I learn it and then I do. I mean, there's a real hazard <laughs> in doing the job I do and seeing all the gardens that I see because I come back and I want that in my own garden and I get all these ideas. Yes. And, and so I'm always, you know, always wanting more and coveting new plants and it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Dan Pearson and Pete. Do you have any other influences that you have taken recently, either books or gardens or people? Arnie Maynard, I've known for years and love his gardens, absolutely love his gardens. And his own garden at Altibella here is absolutely beautiful. It's just not too formal. It's really lovely. Mm -hmm. In the States, well, there's a photographer, I don't know whether you've come across her, Nockman Go, and she's in New York and she just takes the most beautiful photographs. And so her work, I really, really love. And yeah, lots of photographers. Lots of garden designers, people like Beth Tatter, who is no longer with us, very sadly. I was lucky enough to meet her and interviewed her. And yeah, I just, I just try and learn from these people. Yeah, yeah. Fergus Garrett at Great Dixter is the most extraordinary person. And yeah, I mean, I'd say that garden is probably the most influential in the country. And he is incredibly talented and incredibly hardworking. And very happy and willing to share his knowledge, which is quite typical, I think, of of gardeners, which is why it's a lovely world to be in, because people are generally very happy to to share. But yeah, Fergus Garrett, I think he does these lectures. He just will talk and talk and talk. And and he's very good at not being too highbrow. So he will explain things very well and in just such an enthusiastic way. He's incredible. So yeah, I think he probably is one of the most influential gardeners of today in this country. I definitely have a life goal of going to one of those week-long symposiums. I do. (laughs) I do too. (laughs) Uh, That'd be amazing. My friend actually did, I think she did the the designer course there, which was to go there every month for a year. And she absolutely loved it. And she just said it was so interesting seeing the garden over the course of a year because it just every month it's different and every month there's something to see and it's yeah just so inspirational yeah and you have children who are not now not so young but when they were younger did you include them in the garden in any way did they show an interest well yeah so when they were really young I had another allotment it wasn't my London allotment it was an allotment that I feel quite proud of this but we are with some neighbours um, I started some allotments basically we dug a whole field over wow. and we made some allotments and we fenced it off and oh, it was just amazing so we had this this really lovely time when probably about six or seven families got together and we all had kids and we all made our allotments and we had 
we had barbecues over there and we had, you know, communal parties and there was a tree house and, oh, it was idyllic. It really was. And I used to get my kids to, to come over and help plant potatoes and try and get them involved. And when they were tiny, they did. They loved it. And it felt good that they knew where their food was coming from and where their, where their vegetables were coming from and that they understood all that. And as they got older, I'm afraid they showed less and less interest which is a shame but it's it's inevitable I think and now they don't show much interest at all although they they understand actually my my younger boy who's 17 he quite often comes out and or looks out into the garden and says oh the garden's looking good at the moment and that's just even that oh yeah (laughs) that's rewarding and actually he he does come and take little videos of me and and takes photographs for my instagram so and he's good at that he's quite creative at taking photographs as well so so in that way he is involved (laughs) totally i know you still have a vegetable garden but do you still grow most of your own food Mm, no sadly because it's not huge my veg patch Mm -hmm. so it's it's more a case of just topping it up it's a shame and I would like to grow more but again it's a matter of time and I seem to I don't know as I get older I just seem to take on more and more and more (laughs) yes my time gets thinner oh dear but if I'm not if I'm not gardening I do feel twitchy I I have to be gardening to make me feel happy I, I really really think that now um because I I miss it when I'm not doing it if I'm feeling a bit angsty and I just get out there and do something like I did this weekend I just yeah instantly feel better it's amazing Mm -hmm. yeah when did you realize that for yourself I think probably about 10 years ago and yeah just feeling generally a bit cool up and down up and down and on the down bits if I went outside and connected with the garden, I just would feel better again. And also, I think, you know, I said a bit before about going into winter and how I just wanted to hibernate. I, I go into a little bit of a decline in winter. It's not yeah. my favorite season. It's never bad. But actually, if I keep things going and keep the gardening going in winter, and I have seedlings in the greenhouse, and I sow some seeds in autumn so I can watch those sprout and and grow over winter then that makes me feel so much better so yeah just I think being more self-aware in the last 10 years that's that's when I've realized that that gardening is incredibly therapeutic for a lot of people actually not just me for a lot of people yeah and I think more and more people especially in lockdown as well people have just relied on their gardens and really been in their gardens and it's been a confusing time it hasn't been brilliant has it for the whole world and so I think a lot of people have realized the therapeutic value of of gardens very much so in the last couple of years yeah the last question for you would be based on this experiences that you've had how do you think that we can bring more people into the garden in the future well I think you know things like your podcast is just brilliant and more and more people are doing that and yeah just just sharing sharing knowledge and using technology to do that is a wonderful way to do it and people you know the net can be widened out because people can learn online they don't have to go somewhere I think yeah the future of gardening is just it's fantastic at the moment it's so positive And you have to take positives from bad situations. And I do think that that COVID has brought more people into gardening and hopefully will continue to do that. So, 
you know, out of something awful comes something rather amazing, really. Yeah. I actually have one last question for you, which is, do you have any other books planned? <laughs> <laughs> we might do. I might do. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I think Andrew and I, we kind of slightly have got the bug now. <laughs> yeah. So we are planning another one. It's very early stages. It's not the summer garden. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But yeah, there will be another book in due course. We're, we're going to try and photograph throughout this year. So, and we have high ambitions for it not to be so UK centric as well. Oh, oh, wonderful. Yeah. It's just such a pleasure to have you here today. I've admired your work for a long time and learned so much for it. So, oh, thank you. <laughs> That's very nice of you to say that. I'm really flattered. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Garden People is produced with generous support from our sponsor, Plant Gem. Plant Gem sells unique plants you won't find anywhere else for a garden that reflects your personal style. Find them at www.plantgem.com. As always, thank you for supporting the companies that support this podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left a review as it helps other garden people find us. You'll find links for everything we've discussed in the show notes or on our website. To get early access to our guest list and information about bonus episodes, gardening tips from our guests, and more, Sign up for the newsletter at violetearstudio.com.